the Evolve to Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My guest this week is Martin Edwards, CEO of Julia's House, a children's hospice charity based in Dorset and Wiltshire. Julia's House is an incredible charity providing support to the children and their families caring for a child with life-limiting or life-threatening conditions, providing frequent and regular support either in their own homes, in the community or at the two hospices. Julia's House is a charity that is really close to my heart and for over five years now I've been a trustee and more recently the chair of the board of trustees for Julia's House. So I'm really passionate about Julia's House and the great things it does as a charity. But for this podcast I wanted to get Martin's perspective on how the role of a business leader within a charity may compare to that of a business leader and an entrepreneurial business and compare it to the pressures and challenges that someone running a business may face. There's a lot here to be learned on both sides, as you would expect, and I hope you walk away from this podcast with a slightly different perspective on life and fresh ideas on how to run your business. Among a number of fascinating things that we cover in this podcast, Martin tells us how his original ambitions and approach to work come from a famous French play he studied at school. Antigone and Crayon and in ancient Greece. And Antigone is the idealist who's appalled by the state of the world and wants to step away from it utterly. And Crayon is the realist. He's the ruler who says, it's dirty, but we have to roll up our sleeves. Says the current crisis is helping to speed up important decision-making. In that sense, the crisis is an opportunity because things that might have taken us three months consultation and, and two years of ripple effects afterwards are having to be conceived on Monday and, and achieved by Friday. And reveals the brilliant method he used to enhance his public speaking skills. I used to uh, play over and over again speeches by Martin Luther King and I read speeches of Ronald Reagan and later of Barack Obama. I sort of took them apart and, and deconstructed them and thought, well, how, how do they do that? What are the elements of those great speechmakers? Please do remember to go to EvolveMembers.com to find out more about Evolve. But in the meantime, let's get on with the show. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Hello, Warren. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Martin, for our listeners, we're obviously going to do something slightly different uh, on today's podcast because you're a CEO, a leader of a you know well-known charity, Julius House. So, and I want to compare kind of leading a charity v leading an entrepreneurial businesses and some of the challenges and differences and are there differences? I'd like us to explore that, Martin. But for our listeners, just please, could you tell us a little bit about Julius House, the charity that you do lead? Yes, yeah, so we're a, a children's hospice helping children throughout Dorset and Wiltshire with home care and hospice care. And it's respite care throughout their lives um, to give the parents a break, but also emergency care and end-of-life care, which is the more intensive clinical interventions. So uh, we're registered with the Care Quality Commission. Um, Quality and safety are an essential part of our services. And we're also largely voluntary funded. 
So um, for us, uh, that means that we have to go out and make our income happen. It doesn't just happen through government contract. We're part of a national network and we also um, are leading national research in order to try to improve um, support that is offered by the public sector for the families that we help. So we're, we're researching evidence to show the impact of our work and to show what, uh, what pump priming that could do for more families around the country. Brilliant. Thank you, Martin. So you, I understand you joined the charity yourself 15 years ago, or just over yes, 15 I years did. ago, yes. in 2005. And I saw a photo of myself back then and I thought, gosh, that's what my hair used to look like. <laughs> I had that feeling too, but I have to look a bit further back. Mine was, mine, mine was a colouring issue. <laughs> um, so uh, you joined the charity in 2005. There's been significant growth in the charity since, but Tell us about what were those few, first few months coming into the role as a CEO? Because I think this was your first kind of real CEO, prime leader kind of role in an organisation. What were those first few months like? It was very exciting and very challenging. We were a small charity then. We had about a half a million pound turnover. And to put that into context, we now have a turnover of around seven and a half million. There was a lot of innovation and dynamism, but there was also a degree of unprofessionalism, of, of trial by error. And uh, there was a real mix of skills in the staff that we had. So some people did have the right skill sets to be, uh, to be with us on that journey as we grew and became more professional and others didn't. Um, and I think had I known the management challenges that I would face, I might have run screaming um, <laughs> and not joined at all. That, that, that first year, particularly the first 18 months, was incredibly eventful. But we had to go through those changes. But I already sensed that that dynamism and that that passion when I when I joined. So there was a lot to build on. It's interesting. Is it just something you say there, and it's something that you see a lot in high growth entrepreneurial businesses? Is actually sometimes some of the difficult decisions that have to get made on the team that gets the organisation business running, going that ball having momentum aren't necessarily the team that then can take you on the longer term. Journey and, um, yeah, and it can be quite a painful change because those people feel passionately part of and, and responsible for the organisation. Yeah. And, and, and some will make that transition and others won't. Um, but you, you, get a, a, you get a honeymoon period, but you have to maximise the change in that period. And, and, and I think you can also... Um, uh, you can signal changes. So, for example, um, I felt on day one, I, I saw some issues about the fire safety of the office that I wasn't happy about. And by, by day two, we had fixed them all. And that showed everybody that a new broom had come in. Mm. We also made some quite profound changes in the, the tone and the culture of the organisation. We brought in a mental health helpline for staff within the first two or three months. This was 15 years ago, before mental health was a was a a much talked about subject, uh, which is our way of, of saying we care about you, our staff, and we want to keep you well. Uh, we recognise that this is very draining work that you do working with children who many of whom will die young. So, you know, there were lots of changes in those in those first six to 12 months. Most of them good changes. Others were, were very tough. The, the, the staff changes that we, we made. Interesting. And what would you have said your original ambition was when you set out in the role 15 years ago? I wanted to make a difference to the world around us. And I felt that 
I, I knew about hospice care because I had worked for an adult hospice. So I knew that it was a lot more than just about end of life. It was about all of the life from the diagnosis onwards. And for some children's conditions, that can be many, many years. It doesn't have to be a few weeks or months, although we do look after some children who will live very short lives. So it's about the quality of life. It's about fun and enjoyment, about helping each child to make the most of each day. And and I felt that and this was an organisation with its heart in the right place that had already discovered some innovations. So we were doing a lot more care at home than most other hospices. We were doing a lot more respite care to take the pressure off parents, which, as we later found out from research, does reduce the incidence of parents splitting up or um, developing developing pressures that could turn into mental health needs. Uh, so there were some exciting innovations there, and we were able to expand those and also to show the rest of the country some of those innovations. Okay. Perfect. And in terms of your personal ambition, what do you think that looked like and how has that evolved and changed? I um, I remember when I was at school, I, I studied the, the French play Antigone by Jean Ennui. And this is the classic confrontation between Antigone and Creon and in ancient Greece. And Antigone is the idealist who's appalled by the state of the world and wants to step away from it utterly. And Creon is the realist. He's the ruler who says, it's dirty, but we have to roll up our sleeves yeah. and, and do something. And one phrase in that particularly stuck out, which was, which means somebody has to take the helm. And that's what Crayon says to Antigone. It may be imperfect, but somebody has to take the helm. We have to get stuck in here. And that, that really became a motto of mine, really. Okay. And, and, and leadership is messy and sometimes you're dealing with things that are um, very imperfect and you have to shape them as best that you can and yeah. it's going to be bumpy sometimes it's going to be incredibly stressful but my ambition is to leave the world a better place than I found it now obviously we're, we're just working in one corner of our world when you know we're not a global charity but we are changing the world one child at a time and one family at a time and, and influencing the national picture as well. And and I'm lucky that I'm, I'm surrounded by people that share that passion. And that opens up an interesting question, which is that when you have a chance to shape your own team and not just inherit a team, recruitment is absolutely vital. I think the most important decisions we ever take as leaders are recruitment decisions, mm. not necessarily financial or strategic decisions. And there's, there's nothing better than surrounding yourself with brilliant people who are better at what they do than you are. Yeah, definitely. And That's a mantra of many, isn't it? It is so true. Absolutely. But, but I think the trap that uh, employers fall into is that they, they don't spend enough time thinking through the recruitment process mm -hmm. and they concentrate mainly on technical skills. Yeah. Whereas uh, you, to some extent you can teach technical skills, but you can't teach character and values. So how much time are you actually spending in that recruitment process matching for character and values yeah. that's that's the lesson i've learned over the years yeah i'd agree with that I'd, I'd look back and look at you know recruitment that i've undertaken at inspire over the years that that hasn't quite gone to plan or, or the outcome hasn't quite been in the long term as we had liked or wished and it's always been because you know we compromised at that point of recruitment and we knew deep down we were compromising but we decided actually 
we needed a person rather than waiting to find the right person. Yeah, the um, the England World Cup rugby coach um, Sir Clive Woodward has a phrase for this. He says every team has a sapper, even one in a team, and you will fail. Get rid of them. Now, whether you've inherited that sapper or whether you've recruited them. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't have those values, if they don't have those positive values, it doesn't matter how individually skilled they are, yeah. that they will drag people down. They will set the wrong example. Yeah. So, for example, we, we've recruited some people who've been technically brilliant, but who've shown themselves to be um, office politicians where they're, they're jockeying for advantage and taking credit where they shouldn't and stabbing people in the back. And we, we, we sift out those people very early yeah. because they don't belong here. And they they create entirely the wrong example. Definitely, um, yeah, it's quite an it's sappers. I'm quite uh, that's quite a nice term to describe it when it when you can get it wrong. And but in terms of, do you think there's a difference between a private business or business and a charity in terms of you talked a lot there about people's individual values um, and behaviours? Do you think? It's even more important in a charity to align what people's individual values are to those of the charity, or well, the um, the Cadbury report around corporate governance in the nineteen nineties by Sir Adrian Cadbury explored this issue, and it and it very clearly drew a line, uh, drew a, drew an association between ethics in the boardroom and profitability. Yeah, and I used to work for a multinational company, and. They were, I think they were run on, on fairly good principles, but, um, but it was all about selling product regardless of how they had to dress up that, that, that product in order yeah. to sell it. Um, and there was a terrific amount of office politics going on. And I, I saw a lot about there that I really didn't want to replicate. Uh, and I've had one employer in the voluntary sector, uh, which was um, really, really bad as an employer. It was a, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a perfect example of how not to do things. And therefore, it was a good education for me. You can learn as much from the bad employers in your past as from the good ones. And and I determined that if ever I got my chance, I would do things exactly the opposite from how they were doing them. Um, So, no, I, I think the match between values and effectiveness is just as important in both sectors. And and for me, I'm I'm very comfortable in the kind of charity where we are at Juliet's House, where we have to raise um, usually around about ninety percent of our income, and and only five to ten percent comes from statutory sources. So it it is a very entrepreneurial culture by mm. definition. Whereas if I was in a charity where eighty percent of its money was coming from public sector contracts, that would be a very stifling environment for me. Yeah. It would be all about managing the terms and conditions of the contracts. Yeah. That that's that's not where I belong. So in that sense, we're we're quite similar to the entrepreneurial culture that that you work with. Yeah, it's quite and that's quite interesting because obviously, and you you've referred to the kind of uh, level of income needing to be raised every year, and and that your income levels are now seven and a half million pound a year from what they were, you know, very low level fifteen years ago. So you've also gone through that growth curve and spread geographical reach and in, into becoming, a, you know, providing the services not just in Dorset but also in, in Wiltshire in, in that period. So I, 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 can, I can actually see and align with what you say about, you know, that, that being very entrepreneurial in nature and seeking the opportunity where you can do good and following the opportunity to expand for the benefit of 
those that need the services of Julia's house. Yes, and, and there are inherent risks and uncertainties in there. And I think one of the curiosities about working in, in healthcare, but in the voluntary sector, is that on the one side, you have to prize quality and safety and risk aversion yeah. in the provision of care services. And, and I do a lot of work with the senior nursing team to make sure that we eradicate the possibility of serious error and on the other side, you have to be, uh, you have to take risks. You have to be uh, entrepreneurial in your development of income opportunities. So there, there are two quite different cultures at play there. They are, aren't they? they and they do, they don't quite conflict because they're two distinct areas. But, and I suppose income, I mean, particularly, you know, with mid the, you know, COVID crisis at the moment, I, I suppose, and it's been well publicised, isn't it, in in the media and, and understandably, but the, the charities, all charities' income is being suppressed at the moment. So trying to find new ways of raising income and diversifying income streams must be a priority at the moment, Martin. Yes, um, you have to change and change quickly. And, and I think every, every private sector and voluntary sector organisation, everybody except the state, um, is having to change and change quickly. And in that sense, the crisis is an opportunity because things that might have taken us um, three months consultation and, and two years of ripple effects afterwards are having to be conceived on Monday and, and achieved by Friday, you yeah. know. So in that sense, it's, it's quite, a, it's quite an, an invigorating culture. There's a, there's a terrific phrase from a, um, a novel by Giuseppe Lampedusa. The novel is called The Leopard, and it's sometimes called the greatest novel of the 20th century. And one of the characters in The Leopard says, for everything to stay the same, everything must change. And what he's saying is that if we're going to hold on to our, our performance and our values and continue to be successful, we have to be able to question everything. Yeah. And what we're experiencing in COVID is that we have to be able to question and challenge everything, but do it at light speed as well. Yeah. And for me, a key part of being a leader in any circumstance, not just in COVID, is, is restlessness. It's that ability to constantly question how we can do things better, even the things we think we're doing very, very well. And I, I talk about the concept of a CAO rather than a CEO. So the CAO is the chief agitating officer. Okay. And the, the job of a CAO is to constantly agitate for change and improvement, but to do it with tact. Yeah, that's the key thing. So to constantly ask questions around, how do we know that is true? How can we be better at that? How can we do it twice as quickly? Who can help us to get there quicker? How can we really drill down on that to be sure that, that a serious mistake couldn't happen there? Those, those kind of agitating questions, but to do it in such a way that you bring people with you. I think yeah. that's the, the key skill of a good leader. Otherwise, you just become that annoying voice within your yes. organisation. You've got to be there helping provide and be the conduit to help the change then happen, haven't you? You can't just throw the grenades. Yes, absolutely. You've got to be supportive. You've got to follow it through. Yeah. But I think it, that's also the way of avoiding the elephant trap of being in a job too long. Yeah. Uh, it is that voice on your shoulder saying, this isn't good enough, that, that you know, I'm, I'm, I constantly feel like we can and should do better. And that's the way of avoiding complacency. Yeah. 
And complacency is the death of so many organisations. Yeah, it? there was a, a a brilliant businessman called Sir John Harvey Jones, who was featured in the Troubleshooter yeah. Yeah, TV I series. The TV series. He was yeah. the the first of the sort of reality show business advisors, long before Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares <laughs> or the Hotel Inspector. He didn't swear and curse in the same no, way as Ramsay. No, no, he didn't. <laughs> um, but but he was also great television. You know, he had a great a great look, a real, a real flair. And and I not only watched the Troubleshooter series, but I read um, one of his books as well called uh, Making Things Happen. And one phrase jumped out in there. He said, there's nothing more dangerous than yesterday's success. Yeah. And there's a great book as well, you know, that's called, you know, what got you here will not get you where you need to go. And I, and I think that's the same attitude, isn't it? You You just can't get complacent. You can't think you've reached the pinnacle because actually, as you've said, everything does change everything moves on and you've got to move with it and sometimes it's not about how you conceive you should change and improve it's it's how you can get the feedback in order to improve so i i once interviewed an olympic gold medalist adrian morehouse who won the swimming breaststroke gold medal in the seoul olympics Mm. and then became leader of a very successful management consultancy called lane four which takes the lessons from elite sport and teaches them to business It's called Lane 4 after the lane in which he won his gold medal. And I asked him, how did you make the transition from being a a solo performer to a leader of a very successful organization? Because they, like Julia's house, have appeared in the Sunday Times Top 100 Employers for many years. And he said at at elite sport level, even if you're a solo performer, it is a team sport because around you, you've got a nutritionist, a psychologist, a masseur, a performance coach, you've got a team of people. And he said, I was feedback hungry for anything that could give me that extra margin for success. Yeah. And I've always remembered that phrase. And in the end, he won the gold medal by one hundredth of a second. Yeah. So in our context, when we get complaints or concerns about the service we provide, I'm all over those like a rash. Mm-hmm. I want to know all about what those concerns are because there could be a real gem of information in there about how to improve. Um, similarly, you know, we've seen examples in the charity sector where organisations uh, stop doing that. For example, some of the charities that got in trouble with the safeguarding scandal or with poor donor acquisition methods when they farmed it out to agencies to sign up new donors and, and the quality of those conversations was 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 very poor. They weren't involved in enough of the right scrutiny. They weren't, and they weren't hearing the feedback that they got either. One of the one of the worst scandals there's ever been in healthcare was the Mid Staffordshire health scandal in the 1990s, where the Mid Staffs NHS Trust was getting good ratings from the inspectors and the people running the organisation, the boards and the senior executive were measuring apparently impressive charts and progress indicators. But meantime, patients were dying of thirst on the wards, literally dying of thirst. Mm. And there was a total disconnect between the people running the organisation and the experience on the ground of people receiving services. So for me, you have to stay close to that experience. And when you get warning signals through complaints or concerns, you uh, you have to find out all about them and you have to look at them with a a totally open mind rather than this sort of institutional defensiveness yeah but having an open mind is a can be a challenge in itself because naturally human nature is to be defensive isn't it and protective so how do you think you 
apply or have grown that open mindset? Well, I can remember one incident that I that I had to investigate. It was actually a, a, a disagreement between staff rather than a concern about the quality of the service. And uh, and I interviewed fifteen people. I interviewed anybody who had an angle on that that had that had been raised by somebody else. So that I had interviewed everybody. I had I had left no stone unturned in trying to get to the bottom of the balance of opinion about what what had happened. If I'd just looked at that from a sort of time and motion point of view, I would have interviewed two people, come to a quick conclusion, tried to put it to one side and moved on. Yeah. But I felt it was much more important to do a really thorough investigation. Okay. And you mentioned a few minutes ago the Sunday Times Top 100 Best Places to Work. And I think it's Julius House has featured in that, I think, for over 12 years. So what I'm interested to learn from you, Martin, is... Um, why is Julia's House such a great place to work? What sets it out as an employer? But why do you think that recognition is important? Well, the first thing to say is that it's it's a survey of your own staff done by independent people. Mm-hmm. And the scores are compared against every other organisation that enters. So it's what your own staff think about you, being as honest as they like, anonymously, to an independent assessor. So it's very, very honest feedback. Um and uh, and, and I, I treat that not as a ranking exercise to say, oh, we're in the top 100, but as, as a management information exercise. I want to know what our staff are thinking about the way they're line managed, the way their team is led, um, what they think about pay and conditions. Uh, all of those groups of questions in, in that survey. And we can track the scores from one year to the next. Because they're consistent questions. Yes, because you you don't identify who you are, but you identify what function you work in. So we can track the scores. If, for example, we have a chain of shops, so we have retail staff, if if they feel that we've got a lot better or worse at a a category of of questions, like how are you line managed from one year to the next, then then we can start to understand, well, why is that? And what can we do about that if, if things have got worse? So it's about responding to the management information. And I suppose it's good evidence of what you're saying as well about gaining feedback and yes. dealing with the feedback once it's received. Yes. But, but you know, we also try to be a, a good and fair and emotionally literate employer. We train managers in advanced interpersonal skills, in emotional intelligence. Um, I think a lot of organisations assume that if somebody's got the word manager in their job title, they will automatically be a fair, sensitive, kind, concerned, interested person. They might be, but they might not. And I want to... They might have just been employed to their point of incompetence. Exactly, yeah. There is that that saying, isn't there? Um, But I I want to eradicate that inconsistency and and I want us to reach for for, for a gold standard in the way that we support each other. Because, again, if you look at it from an efficiency point of view, how much time do organisations spend recruiting again, because they got recruitment decisions wrong or involved in grievances and disciplinaries because the relationships have broken down in, in the workplace. And that's where you really hemorrhage time as a senior manager, trying to, to sort those things out. So getting the culture right means that you're doing less of that overall. Yeah, okay. It's interesting to, to understand. What I'm also intrigued to talk about is that, you know, as a private business, so this is probably one of those areas where perhaps business and a charity in the third sector is different, is we have we have a large number of stakeholders, but probably 
a small number in comparison to a charity. Now, when I think about Julius House and charity generally, I mean, you're you're dealing with the children, the families, uh, the the trustees, the sort of governance aspect, the general public, because they're providing and helping you provide the funding. You've got famous patrons and ambassadors or with personalities and egos to a degree as well we've got 500 volunteers as well you've got 500 volunteers you've got major donors so high net worth individuals and then you've got people like the cqc and you know and the government as well from the health perspective so how do you even start to juggle the interests of all those different stakeholders well let me give you an example. Um, I, I have a, an apocryphal supporter in mind called Mrs. Brown from Ferndown. Uh, and she's, if you like, our typical supporter. She might hold a coffee morning for us and give us a, a, a small donation every so often. So she, she's not giving you the big bucks, but she's very important to me because she's our bellwether for how we are perceived in the community. And, and I feel that if what we're doing isn't good enough for Mrs. Brown from Ferndown, we shouldn't be doing it who, by the way, is somebody who might leave us a legacy when she passes away and become a very, very big supporter of the charity. So I think you you have to constantly put yourselves in the shoes of the people that you're trying to serve and support and liaise with. So if it's a major donor, they expect to see me out there communicating with them. They don't expect just to be communicating with somebody with the word fundraiser in their title. Yeah, they they want just they want to know. To land on their door Absolutely. So so I need to be part of those relationships yeah. and, and leading some of those relationships. And and by the by, they're often what I call accelerators. They're people who can accelerate your plans drastically by the sheer amount of support that, that they can yeah. give you. You know, this whole sort of Google um culture of, of how can we do it ten times better or 100 times quicker, not just 10% better or or quicker. Those are the kind of accelerators that that can get you there. So I'm constantly trying to ask, what would these people expect and need? It's the same with working with a board of trustees. What would they expect and need to know in order to be able to discharge their governance duties correctly? And let's provide it to them before it even occurs to them to ask the question. Okay. So it is about looking at that that is a broad range of stakeholders all with different kind of interests and needs and just trying to assess sort of avatar each and every one of them i suppose understand those needs and then respond accordingly yes but i think in many cases you also have to try to uh, go above and beyond their expectations so for example in the in the covid situation we've not been able to use the willing help of all of our over 70s volunteers yeah because if you're over age 70 you're deemed clinically vulnerable and the government says you shouldn't be using people in the workplace. Yeah. So we've got a lot of elderly volunteers who've been isolating at home and not having that sense of community of, of, of working in their Julius House team. Uh, in the last few weeks, I've phoned nearly 100 of them. And wow. other, other staff have phoned scores of them as well to check up on them and, and to see if they're OK, to show that we care about them and, and to show that they're not out of sight, out of mind. And, and I think that you know, they're, they're amazed when the chief executive will phone them up and, 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 and say to, you know, Mrs. Brown from Ferndown, how are you? Are you getting enough supermarket supplies? Have you got neighbours looking in on you? And I think they, they remember that forever. Yeah, definitely. But that's about one of the things that I'm passionate about with Evolve and Inspire is that we should be a strong part of our community in which we operate. And yes. That's 
those same principles coming through for Julius House. Absolutely. And, and, and we've seen plenty of examples of national charities that have become too big to care. Yeah. The, you know, the, the overseas aid charities that were employing people who were abusing women in the overseas communities or who were too big to care about the quality of the conversations between their, their canvassing agencies and their potential new supporters. Um, and you, particularly as a community-based organisation, you must never become too big to care. No, definitely not. And again, it's, it's what sets out an entrepreneurial business and an entrepreneurial-focused kind of minded charity Yeah. to the big corporates, isn't it? And that's where we can be more nimble, more agile. We can really make a difference to those that interact with us. Yes, I think in an ideal world, a, a mid-sized charity like ourselves has got the professionalism of a big charity, but it still has the passion and, and the, the demonstrable care yeah. of a small, locally rooted charity. Yeah, definitely. Before we go on to talk about Martin as an individual and things that inspire you, I just a number of years ago, you, you did make that geographical reach from Dorset to Wiltshire, which was an exponential growth for the charity. What made, you, what made the charity go in that direction? What did you see was needed and how did it change your style of leadership well we had a model of care that was special we we provide a lot of help in the children's own homes and you're talking about families who are isolated because their child's health means that they're not easily transportable so you need to bring the care out to them and we provided a lot of regular lifelong respite which helps preserve the quality of the relationships between the parents and, and throughout the family. So we had something special. We measured every other county around us uh, and we realised that there was a big gap in care in one of our neighbouring counties in Wiltshire. And I felt that we had the management bandwidth to do more. So, you know, we were called the Dorset Children's Hospice, but uh, I felt that instead of just sitting on that for the next 25 years, we had the management capability to do more. So we'd, we'd done a needs assessment. We felt we had the capability within the organisation and we produced, a, we did several months of research, which is essentially market research to show the need was there and to show the potential to fund that need. And and we, we put it to the trustees and, and they said, well, if you can raise the money. So we went out and raised the money and, and a large part of how we, did that quickly was that um, we managed to get the support of Guy Ritchie, the film director, and some friends of his. And uh, between them, they raised two thirds of our appeal total for the new hospice wow. very quickly. Guy raised nearly a million pounds from a private event. And one of the guests at that event was Robert Downey Jr., who Guy had directed in the two Sherlock Holmes movies. And he persuaded Robert to fundraise for us. And, and Robert raised another $2 million. And it was very difficult to get through to somebody like Guy because he's very private and mm. a thousand charities want to be his new best friend. Um, and that's where you have to use your professionalism. You have to respect the privacy of people. You have to talk to them on their own terms. You have to excite them with a vision as well yeah. about what you're trying to achieve. But we did it and he helped us. And... Um, that got us um, probably five years quicker where we needed to go. That has its own. I mean, that's isn't it fantastic that that happens. But 
it's the same as when perhaps equity funding comes into a business and all of a sudden there's an expectation at that point, isn't there, that yes. you now need to deliver. Whereas if you have sometimes that slower route, you're building the delivery methodology, yes. how you're going to actually you know, succeed in this growth. But overnight, you've, not quite overnight, but overnight you've got the funding that presents its own challenges. Yes, and, and we then obviously had to um, grow the organisation in recruitment terms quite quickly. Yeah. And that places a much greater emphasis on the quality of communication and on, and on the quality of team management. But we, we already had good building blocks in place there. We were all, already an organisation that I think communicated well with its staff, not just to them, but with yeah. them. And we'd already done management training, as I said, in, in advanced interpersonal skills. So, the, you know, we had, we had good building blocks there. And I'm so pleased we did it because every time I talk to a parent of a child in Wiltshire who we've helped, I've realised how much of a difference it's made to them. Mm. So sometimes you do have to take risks and to think big. And, and, and I'm, I'm so pleased that we've done it. Fantastic, Martin. So clearly an individual that leads by inspiring others and getting others to be the best of themselves is how I'd reflect on some elements of that conversation, Martin. But how do you ensure you get the best of yourself? How do you find your own inspiration? Well, I, I learn from role models. So I, I remember realising quite early on in my career how important public speaking was. And um, <clears throat> I used to uh, play over and over again speeches by Martin Luther King and uh, I read speeches of Ronald Reagan and later of Barack Obama, and I I, I sort of took them apart and 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 deconstructed them and thought, well, how how do they do that? How how are they? What are the elements of those great speechmakers? And there was a pattern to it. There were techniques to it. Um, there was certainly a, a regular and inspiring use of storytelling, which was a common theme across all three of them. And I looked at the, the sort of cadences and the emotion that Martin Luther King brought into his speeches. And, uh, and, I, and I prepared very, very carefully for very key speeches at different points in my career, which are not often, not, not always speeches to external audiences, often they're speeches to your internal audiences, to your own staff and volunteers. There's a world of difference between just doing it quite well and sending people out of that room walking tall and realising the pride and passion that they should feel. Yeah. So some of your inspiration is looking back at history and, you, and obviously literature seems to be a big thing for you. Yeah, and I, and... I, I read about leadership quite widely as well. Yeah. And um, I'm constantly on the lookout for innovative, inspiring thinkers who I yeah. can look into. The world of sport is, 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 is full of them. There's a, a wonderful basketball coach in America called Patricia Summit who was the Alex Ferguson of women's basketball. She won more of anything uh, in women's basketball than any other coach. Okay. And uh, she was such a good leader that she was even brought in by the CIA to coach them in leadership techniques. And uh, Patricia Summit said uh, in the way that she managed her, her team, her, her players, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And what she was saying was you can be the most knowledgeable technically manager but if you are not interested in your people you will never get the most out of them yeah so i i'm i'm looking for interesting thinkers out there who who, who do things differently or who just get ahead and then and then i look into what why did they get ahead 
Yeah. Don't just look up to them, but but look into them. Don't yeah. Scratch the surface and go a little bit deeper and understand them as individuals. To yes. See why they did what they did. And, and read Don't what just they... read the book. Yeah. And then put it to one side. Type yeah, that's right. Okay. Um. There's got to be days though, Martin, when things do get tough and do things do get overwhelming. How do you rejuvenate yourself when those days or periods of time come along? I think that's a that's a really tough one, particularly in our line of work. You know, we're, we're talking about children who, for the most part, will die young. Mm. They won't all necessarily, but but you know that that is yeah. that is where we're going with 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 many of them, and, and so the the lows can be pretty low. Mm. You have to have a a good team of mutual supportive colleagues around you. Yeah, you know, we're, we're good at looking after, really looking out for each other. Yeah, you you have to try to develop you know external mentorships, um, external um, sounding board groups of, of, of peer groups, and you have to try to be good to yourself and develop hobbies and interests. Um, but it, it's not perfect, and I put a lot of emotion into my work, and I think sometimes you can almost put too much of that into it and, and, and feel quite burned out from time to time. Yeah. So it, it, it's not it's not easy. No. There's no perfect magic wand, is there? No. But I think that is part of what comes with a restless personality. Yeah. That's part of what makes leaders successful if they are successful. There is that constant feeling of dissatisfaction, if you like, that's, that you should always be better. But there is still that balance you've got to obtain, isn't there? That restlessness. And I, I, I can empathise with that and I get that and I can see that in myself and I can see that in others. But at some point, you've got to take some time out and recharge and fill the batteries back up. Yeah. Because otherwise you will deplete, 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 deplete to the point of the kind of, um, you know, fully running out of the energy, the power. and, and hit the Yeah, that's forward. right. Um, I mean, I, I like to exercise a lot. But I just have to be have to guard against the the over overdoing it. You know, <laughs> those same tendencies going too far, if you like. You know, I like I like watching box sets, catching up on box sets on yeah. on on TV. I uh, I sketch a bit. I read quite a lot. You know, we we all have ways of just trying to take our minds off work. And yeah. but I also think it's it's really important to have those external voices, that that mentor or, or that peer group. And I do quite a bit of mentoring of other people in in the charity sector as well, and and it's very it's very good to have somebody with a different perspective to say, well, hang on, why aren't you doing this? Or you need to look after yeah. yourself better. I yeah, I think having those the, those mentors or those peers, be it in a kind of facilitated kind of peer group, you know, that obviously evolve do run, uh, but also, but I actually think that accountability partner, just people that are like you, that are doing a similar role or or in a similar organisation where you just meet up for a coffee every now and again and have a chat and, and are open and honest about what's going on in your world and just sometimes unloading and, and actually articulating what's in your head. Yes. Actually is a, is that element of sharing. Yeah. Lifting your head above the grindstone every now and again. Yeah. And and I think when, when you're a, a leader of a group of people, there's a limit to how much you can do that with people who you are responsible for, yeah, and and, and they they are depending on you to some extent. Um, so you you need a peer group, yeah, because you know it's a cliche, but leadership is a lonely position. 
Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's true. Yeah. Definitely. One final question then. When you look back in another 15 years' time, uh, and you, but looking forward to this point here, how would you define success? That we have made the world a brighter place for children and families facing very dark circumstances, um, that we've brought some joy into their lives, that we have helped to create good memories, as well as the bad ones that they will inevitably experience, that we perhaps helped keep families together, and that as a team of people, we've done it in a way that we can look back on with, with tremendous pride. I remember um, closing a speech to staff saying that what you do can't be bottled and replicated. It, it can't be measured by inspectors, though they come here and try. But I hope that you will look back at the end of your time and ask yourselves and know the answer to these questions. Was it, was it worth it, all of the years of time and effort that I put in? Can I be proud of how I did it and the people I did it with? And if I had my chance to do it all again, would I do it all again? Wow. Yeah. Fantastic, Martin. If people want to learn more about you and importantly also learn more about Julius House, where can they go? Well, um, the Julius House website, which is juliushouse.org. Um, you can email me at martin.edwards at juliushouse.org. And uh, I enjoy talking with people who are very effective in their own fields. So I welcome that chance to um, exchange knowledge and methods and advice. So um, please do contact me. Brilliant, Martin. It's been incredible to have you on the uh, Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Warren. I love Martin's profoundly passionate yet philosophical and studied approach to life and leadership. His thoughts on how to be a better person, how to adapt to constant change and how to lead from both head and heart are truly inspiring. As I mentioned in my intro, Martin is at the helm of an organisation that carries with it intense emotions and tough challenges on a daily basis. And I feel his perspective and ideas on leadership in such an environment are great value to us all. To find out more about Evolve, please do go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content as well as information on our peer groups, one-to-one coaching and events. We had our first webinar last week with Becky Holston talking about resilience and it was a great success. We've had some amazing feedback from it and for all of those that bought tickets, thank you for your support. We've got two more webinars lined up in the coming weeks and all that information can be found on our website or on our social media pages. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you haven't yet, please click that subscribe button so you can get your weekly Evolve podcast delivered automatically to your device. We're constantly striving to bring you guests who provide new insights and value to you, whether it's to do with your work life or personal well-being. Thank you for listening and from all the Evolve team, we wish you a great week and hope to see you again soon.